came across a story as I was preparing this week. Take a listen. In the year 2000, Microsoft formally launched a revision of its Windows operating systems for PCs. It was called Windows ME, short for Windows Millennial Edition. One feature of Windows ME that has caused a stir is its new system restore feature. How does it work, you might ask? Well, suppose you suffer from a system crash on your computer this Thursday. You're not a computer expert, and you don't know how to recover last two weeks' worth of financial information that you uh, entered on Wednesday, or your daughter's history report she started writing on Monday, or maybe you lost your favorite game. All you have to do is select System Restore and specify the date to which you want your machine, machine reset. Boom. Problem solved. All the things that you somehow messed up are put back into their configuration of earlier that day. That's magic, right? Wouldn't you like to market that feature for human lives? You think you could supply it fast enough to keep up with the demand? For example, Bob would system restore to the day before he began that affair. Sue would go back to the day before she tampered with payroll data. David would choose the day before the big fight that caused his son to run away from home. Maybe you can remember a day when things crashed for you. You'd give everything or anything you own to restore things to the way they were. God won't erase all the consequences of our actions, but he promises things far better to forgive us to work for the highest good, even through what is bad. And one day, one day, make all things new. What Windows ME calls system restore, God calls redemption. So, how y'all doing? It's so good. It's so good to be here again. It's you know, it's been a minute, hasn't it? What a past few months this has been. What was originally supposed to be a, a two-week break has become this. With a bitterly contested election on top of it. For whatever it's worth, for whatever it's worth, our nation has survived both of these types of events before. But this... This seems different. I'll tell you, in all my 63-plus years, I have never seen our country in such a spot. I've never seen us so divided. I've never seen us so disunited. Tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to system restore us back to when we first heard about this coronavirus. Maybe have us make some different choices. I'd like the system restore us back to a time when people could disagree agreeably. You know, when folks on the right didn't believe that they had a monopoly on patriotism and righteousness, and folks on the left didn't believe that they had a monopoly on science and reason. Yet here we are. I was talking with Mike and Liz 
when we arrived in Winston on Friday evening. We were discussing how trick-or-treat went in our respective places, how participation was just a tiny fraction of what it has been in years past. Now, back in Asheville, where my wife Carol and I live, we <clears throat> had 11 kids, 11. And just last year, we had somewhere between 60 and 70. In my line of work, I speak regularly with small business owners, and they wonder if things will ever get back to quote-unquote normal. And even if so, what that might look like. The world, from the beginning of time, has gone through these types of massive shifts caused by things like disease and war, natural disaster. So what we're dealing with is really nothing new. The question is, how do we deal with it in light of our command, our command, to reach a lost and broken world with the message of God's already not yet kingdom? My friends, God's mission hasn't changed in spite of the tumult that's going on around us. In fact, I would say, if anything, God will double down on his desire to redeem and make a way for those who are prepared to participate in this redemption. And that's exactly what we're going to be, talk about beginning today and for the next couple of weeks. The title of our, our three-week series is A Hope and a Future. We're going to take a look at some pretty familiar passages from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Now, today we're going to consider the first nine verses of chapter 29. Now, as many of you know, Jeremiah was a prophet of God during the time leading up to and including the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the carrying away of a large group of survivors to Babylon. You got to sit back and wonder, how did we get to this place? Well, it didn't just happen overnight. Things that were happening in Israel and uh, in, in, in places like Judah, which was a tribe within Israel, and within Jerusalem, the city itself, which is where the temple of, of, of the Lord was, where the, it was the center of worship. It was literally the center of the Hebrew world. What had been going on for the hundreds of years before then is really nothing that we're unfamiliar with as human beings. We've seen it throughout history. It, was, it started with, with people that were just... They, they lost their ability to discipline themselves, to do the things that they needed to do to maintain a certain level of order. Now, if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you see that God set up a specific way that he wanted things done. And he, as time went on, he appointed kings. And like anything else, when you deal with human leadership, you get some good ones, you get some bad ones, and you get some other ones that are more like, well, meh, you know, they're okay. Well, what had happened was, was over time, the nation of Israel had struggled with some really poor leadership. And when I say poor leadership, I, I don't mean just guys that were doing simple stuff. I'm talking about people that, um, that, were, that were aiding and abetting in idol worship, that were aiding and abetting in, in child sacrifice, that were horribly corrupt. You would ultimately get one really good leader, and then all of a sudden it got to the point where there were three really bad that would tear down any of the good things that, that were going on. And all the while, what was happening was God was sending prophets. He was sending people to, that, were, that were warning against this, saying, look, if you guys don't get this together, you know what you need to do. You know what has to happen. What, what will eventually happen is, is that you will be judged. And what happened, it's like anything else that we tend to see. Think about this. 
if you hear the same thing over and over and over and over again, pretty much, pretty soon you, you begin, you almost get deaf to it. It gets to the point where you don't even pay any attention to it. I mean, what often, what, what, and really what really happened was people mistook the grace of God, his long suffering, his great patience with his people. They mistook this for God giving license for them to pretty much live their lives any way they saw fit. And as they were about to find out, they couldn't have been any more wrong. As time went on, and God kept getting more and more serious, and he kept sending more and more prophets, and what they started doing was the people would abuse the prophets, and they would say, they would say things to, to God like, God, you're not going to do anything. We're Jerusalem. We're, we're Judah. For heaven's sakes, we're your people. You anointed us. You appointed us. You made us who we are. And this temple, this is your house, man. You're not going to wreck it. Come on now. Seriously. I mean, and I'm not just saying, that's exactly what they were doing. Their thought process through this whole, uh, this whole thing that was going on was that, you know, we're the children of Israel, man. We got this, we got this made. God's not going to judge us. And then all of a sudden, things started to change. And what happened was is that, I'll put this in a, in a vernacular, is that the news started to tighten. And all of a sudden, the outer, outer lands were conquered by people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And pretty soon, all that was left was Judah. And then pretty much all that was left after that was the city of Jerusalem. And understand something about the Babylonians who were about to conquer this city, who, who these, what we're going to talk about. The Babylonians, they were, um, they, were, they were an advanced civilization. These guys had it together. They had great cities. And they had a great kingdom, and they were building a great empire. They were learned, you know, for back in the day. They had established, you know, trade and everything else. This was not some, you know, rabble, uh, you know, warlike group of people. These were people that they had it together. But understand something else about these guys. They were cruel. They were awful people. I mean, they would go into a land and conquer it, and then they would do things that you and I couldn't even begin to describe. Because what they were trying to do is, is that they were trying to make an example of anybody that got in their way. It's like, you know what, if you come in and you, you, you resist us, this is what's going to happen to you. However, if you come in and let us take, well, we won't be quite so cruel. Well, as we might know, the children of Judah were incredibly stubborn. So they, they, they laid a couple of years siege, and once the Babylonians were able to break that siege... They went in, and I mean literally leveled the place, leveled it. They killed countless thousands of people. The people that they saved were basically the royalty and people that could actually do something that would help the, help the, the, the Babylonian empire become even greater. You know, like artisans and, and uh, leaders and educated people that they could take back to Babylon and use them to help them advance their kingdom. And then they left the infirm and the sick pretty much to, to, to die. And then they hauled all these people off to Babylon and they leveled, leveled the temple. I mean, there are archaeological stories that, that, that the, the fires were so hot in how they burned this stuff down that you could go into, when they went in and they, they, they did these archaeological digs, they were, finding, they were finding gold that was melted in the cracks of the, of the pavement. That's how, that's how thorough and complete this destruction of this, of this place was. 
And it all began, it all began because these people were just, they couldn't get their act together. They couldn't, they were so arrogant. They were so, they were so, they believed so much that God would never, would never bring this upon them that, that that's, and, and you could imagine you have all these people left in, 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 in the city, in the city of Babylon, these, these, this, this remnant of, 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 of people, and they're shell-shocked. I mean, the, their worst possible nightmare had just come to pass, something they couldn't even have begun to imagine. And here they are sitting there wondering what's going what's to become of them. And then probably, I don't want to say probably, definitely what they started thinking of is, what did we do? And they were probably wondering, you know, God has abandoned us. He's left us here. And some of the smart ones were probably sitting back and thinking, who could blame him? But these people were just, they, they, were, they were, I mean, and you could imagine how this would be. They'd lost everything. Many of them have seen her, had seen horrific destruction and horrific scenes. They lost, all of them lost people that they knew. Many of them lost family members. And then there's this prophet in the midst of this whose name was Jeremiah. And he had been warning them for years and years and years of this impending doom that was about to happen to them. And lo and behold, when it came to pass, they laughed at him the whole time. And when it came to pass, he didn't, they didn't even, he was to the point, they, he was in, still in Jerusalem when all this happened. He wasn't in, they didn't haul him away. He was still back in Jerusalem. Now what we're going to do is many of you know that Jeremiah chapter 29 is a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles that were still in Babylon. Now, mind you, Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem when, when God inspired him to write this letter. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the first nine verses of this letter, and we're going to pick it up again next week, and we're gonna, we're, we'll continue this on. But what Jeremiah does is he, 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 God inspires him to write this letter to the, to the exiles that were still in Judah. So here's what we're going to do. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 9. In your notes that you have either uh, you know, through, the, through, through, through our website or through the app, you'll be able to pick this up. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Let's take a look. We're going to read through the first nine verses of Jeremiah chapter 29. Follow along with me, please. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders and exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I want you to remember that, because we're going to see that a couple of times in this letter. Jeremiah is very specific, and my guess is God was very specific that he wanted him to write this when he says they were taken from ex to in ex into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, okay? There, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen of the, and the metal workers, these were all the artisans and stuff, had departed Jerusalem. Hadn't departed, they had been carried away captive to Jerusalem as we just saw, or from Jerusalem to Babylon as we had just seen. Okay, the letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Zedekiah basically sent these guys. These, these were envoys that they sent, and they were hoping to appease Nebuchadnezzar so he wouldn't come in and destroy Jerusalem. We all know how, the, how well that worked. And it said, this is the letter. This is the beginning of the letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There it is again. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. One of the big issues back in the day was that, uh, you know, There were true prophets of God, guys like Jeremiah, guys like Isaiah, guys that we see in in the Bible, okay? And then there were these false prophets. Basically, what the false prophets did was they told the people what they wanted to hear, you know? These these false prophets were probably the guys that, that gave the idea to the children of Judah and the children of Israel that, you know what? God's not gonna judge us. Ain't gonna happen, you know? We're his people, for heaven's sakes. You know the whole thing, everything we just described. But what we see here, what we see here is God, in a very straightforward manner, instruct the people of Jerusalem what to do going forward. What we'll see as we unpack this is that really none of this is particularly new. None of this is particularly earth shattering with respect to what God is trying to reveal about himself or his plan. And therein, my friends, therein lies the beauty. The title of today's message is Reset, and what we'll see is not so much God changing anything about his plan or purpose for his people as much as a resetting of it. Now, there's three points that I want us to consider from this passage, points that, honestly, once again, aren't particularly new to us, but they are, given the time and context of our current situation, our current situation, very poignant. I also have a takeaway question for us that is not, once again, particularly fresh or earth-shatteringly profound, but is one that stares us right in the face during times like this and begs an answer from us, an honest answer, if we are to fulfill our redemptive potential. So let's get started. Point number one, if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. God is in control. See, I told you, nothing we haven't heard before, right? But as the title of the message might suggest, when doing a reset, it is always wise to remember the basics. And this is about as basic as it gets. And given the times back in the day as well as today, Honestly, friends, couldn't be more reassuring. I believe the main issue that humanity writ large struggles with the most is the issue of control. You see, we want it, even though, if we're honest with ourselves, we've shown time and again that we have no idea what to do with it. 
History is replete with examples of what happens when we're given the reins of power. And you know what? It rarely ends well. Let's start with verse 4. Take a listen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now here is God asserting control over the situation. Here's what I mean. What he is saying is, is many of these people, you know, they, 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 were probably, they were probably blaming each other or they were blaming the Babylonians or they were blaming somebody. Maybe they were blaming some other nation for, for their situation that they found themselves in. And what God is saying here in no uncertain terms is this. You know what? You're here because I sent you here. Blame me. I'm the one. Yes, the captives are in this situation as a result of their own folly. Make no mistake about it. But they're in the place where they are as a result of the sovereign will and judgment of God. And ironically, this is the best possible place for them to be. Here we have a group of people who, in light of everything that happened, probably figured that God had abandoned them. Talked about this just a few minutes ago. Now, I mean, their worst possible nightmare scenario was playing out for them right before their very eyes. And then they hear the words of the true prophet of God, and he reassures them that God has not abandoned them, that he is, in fact, still in control. I don't know about you, but I find this ironically reassuring. I'm reminded of Job in scenarios like this. You know, many of us are familiar with Job. He was a guy in the Old Testament that, um, that was, by all, by all measures, a good guy. I mean, a really, really, really good guy. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in a situation where he literally loses everything. And I don't mean loses everything. Everything's taken from him. It tells us in no uncertain terms that Satan did this. The enemy, the enemy of our souls. The enemy of God, everything, took everything but his life, and God permitted it to happen. And Job will not curse God, just won't do it. His wife encouraged him, curse God and die. No, not going to do that. Calls his, woman, calls his wife a fool. And then he goes on, and then his friends come, and his friends come and comfort him, and this looks reassuring. And then his friends do and say some really stupid things. Just, you probably know this, and I can say this from experience, is that it, it, when bad things happen to people, and they do, and it's sad to see, the worst thing you can do is try to diagnose and fix them while they're struggling and mourning. You know, I found this out when, when my mom died when I was 21. And the, 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 the people I remember the most were the people that just came and they sat and they didn't say anything to me. They were just there. They were present. His friends did, Job's friends did this for a long time. But then they decided, well, you know, let's, 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 try, to, let's, tr let's try to diagnose this situation. It made the matters worse. So Job goes off, and he starts going off on God and starts saying, I've been righteous and blah, 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 and all this other. So basically, what Bible scholars will tell you is he basically put God on trial. You know, he put God on trial. He's trying to convict God of, of abandoning him. The problem with, with Job, I'll get, let you inside on this. 
I don't think Job was angry with God. I think Job was petrified to death that God had abandoned him, that God had left him there, and that he was never going to answer him, and that he all of the things that he did, the way that he worshipped God, everything that he did was for naught because God just left him hanging there. And then all of a sudden, long around Job 38, all of a sudden, out of a whirlwind, comes a voice. Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Gird yourself like a man, God says to Job. I will question you and you answer me. Basically, what he's saying, okay, Job, put your big boy pants on. We're talking. We're doing business now. What's this about? And everybody, as he goes on, and he talks about how he created and all this stuff. And I mean, he made himself known to Job in ways that, and everybody, you know, the first, when I first read this, I thought to myself, geez, Job, you know, he must have been really sad and bummed out because God was really lighting him up, especially when he was feeling bad the way that he was, only to realize it came and it dawned on me. And as I read and I studied, and it, it dawned on me that Job was the happiest guy on the planet at that point in time. You know why? Because God answered him. God spoke into his darkness and revealed himself to him. And Job was like, I'm good with it, man. I'm shutting my mouth. You won't hear another thing out of me. I'm done with it. Carry on. In the case of the exiles, the one thing they needed to hear the most, even though they may have never wanted to admit it, was the fact that God was in control and that he had not abandoned them. Likewise us, friends, likewise us. Listen, listen closely to me. The one thing that we, at this very moment, in the midst of a pandemic that seems to be growing worse by the day, at a time in our nation when we can't even seem to agree on what day it is, when everything we've ever known seems to be coming apart at the seams, we need to hear and embrace that God has not abandoned us. We need to embrace and proclaim that God is in control. Somebody please say amen. It gets better. Number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. God resets his purpose in us in the midst of our afflictions. The exiles may have been thinking, well, it's good to know that you know, God hasn't abandoned us and is still in control, but what now? Well, his answers come, come in verses five to six, five and six. Listen, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage Excuse me, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, on the one hand, this is not the answer that they wanted to hear. The answer they wanted to hear was, pack up, you're going home. They were still, like I said earlier, they were still shell-shocked that everything they had ever known and ever believed no longer existed. The temple the city and all of its inhabitants were either destroyed or gone. Literally, there was no home to go home to. 
However, once again, ironically, it was the best answer given the circumstances that got them there in the first place. Here's what I mean. They were, as we discussed earlier, they were in Babylon directly because of their long-term disobedience and rebellion against God. The fact is that A, that they were still around is in and of itself an act of sovereign grace. And B, the fact that God was still willing to fulfill his purpose in and through them in spite of their long-term disobedience and rebellion is a testament to his faithfulness and loving kindness. What God is saying is that no matter where you are or what your current circumstance may be, I can fulfill my will and purpose for you through you. The exiles from Jerusalem had a tough row to hoe because of their own actions, but because of God's grace and faithfulness, they could still achieve their redemptive potential. They could still achieve their God destiny. Now, to be honest, this is nothing new for God. The fact that he shows up and resets his purpose in many circumstances in many places, he's done it all through time. When you consider how the nation itself, the nation of Israel itself, began was in the midst of affliction and difficulty. Consider the plight of Jacob. Let's go way back. Consider the plight of Jacob and the horrible famine through which he and his family were struggling. That if it weren't for the hand of God, they probably would have never survived. But God showed up. And when Jacob inquired of God as to whether he should sojourn to Egypt at the behest of his son Joseph and leave the land of his fathers, the land of promise, God reveals that his sovereign purpose is not limited to borders or anything else for that matter. Listen to Genesis 46 and verse 3. He says, then he said, this is God speaking, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there, there I will make you a great nation. Do you see that? The very first words, I am God. I am the God of your fathers. You see, what God is doing here is he is asserting control, just as we discussed earlier, and he is revealing to Jacob that his purpose for him will not be thwarted by mere circumstances. You hear what he's trying to say to us? I think he's saying that it doesn't matter that we are in the midst of a pandemic. It doesn't matter who the president is or isn't. It doesn't matter who runs the Senate or anything else for that matter. I am God, the God of your fathers, and I can, and most importantly, will fulfill my purpose in and through you if you will surrender yourselves to me. This leads nicely into number three. Write this down, please. God resets our character in the forge of adversity. This is where things get interesting. Y'all have heard me say on many occasions and make mention of the fact that the one thing that we cannot do as followers of Jesus is treat people with indifference. The great commandment says in a nutshell, love God, love people. Everything we do and everything we are is wrapped up in this. Jesus went on to take this up a notch and say that we are to love, serve, and pray for our enemies. And he also said at the very end of his life that the way that the world will know his followers is by how we love each other. If 
funny how he says that. He didn't say, well, you know, the world will know your love for each other by out-arguing one another or putting up the coolest meme on Facebook. You hear me? Let's consider Jeremiah 29. God had just informed them indirectly that they were going to be in Babylon for the long haul. Now, he hadn't yet revealed how long. That comes later. So the shock was still very fresh. And then he lays this on them. He says in verse, in verse 7, he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Let that sink in for a minute. The Hebrew word here used for welfare is shalom. In other words, they were to seek the peace, God's peace, for their captors and their conquerors. And remember, as earlier in our conversation, we had discussed what kind of people these were. God further instructed them that in doing so, they would in fact find their security and their shalom and their welfare. Let that sink in for a minute. The religious and cultural bigotry of the ancient Hebrews was well known. They were God's chosen. And you know what? They weren't afraid, as we discussed earlier, to let anyone and everyone know it. And now on top of all of the humiliation and all of the destructions that the Babylonians had wreaked on them, they were to pray for and seek their shalom and that their own security and shalom was tied to their enemies. Let that sink in for a minute. God's purpose, his mission, as it was made clear by Jesus of Nazareth several hundred years after these events, was to seek and save that which was lost for the purpose of redeeming and ushering in his shalom for all of creation, including the enemies of the people that he had just chosen to help usher it in. What God is doing here is forging the character of a people who would have the desire and the ability to pray for and seek the welfare of those whom would otherwise be considered their enemies. He was offering to transform them, to soften their hearts in preparation of his coming kingdom. Let's fast forward 2,600 years or so. These words, this verse is for us. If we cannot pray, for the peace and welfare of our fellow countrymen, of our brothers and sisters, simply because they disagree with us politically or for whom they may or may not have voted, we have no right to claim God's blessing for us. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum or for whom you may or may not have voted. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to pray for the peace of our city, of our nation, and for God to reveal himself to every person who has ever drawn a breath. I know this is hard, and I know how much this has cost some of us. But this is the price of being a follower of Jesus. We commit to laying down our lives for the fulfillment of a kingdom mission. And in the process, God changes us to be a better reflection of Jesus. All of the difficulty, 
all of the suffering that all of us may have gone through and are currently going through is perfected in the transformation of our character to become better images of Jesus. St. Paul puts it so clearly in Romans 5. He says, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Drink deeply of your adversity, my brothers and sisters, because in it, the character of Christ is forged within you. If, if you will allow it. Okay, quick review. In the midst of difficult or even catastrophic shifts, God's purpose remains the same, even though he may be resetting it a little bit. He reminds us that he is in control and that even in the tough stuff that is often brought about by our own folly, he hasn't abandoned us. He tells us that he resets his purpose in the midst of our affliction and that even in the midst of, great of a great reshifting, his purpose takes precedent and he still desires to use us in this process. He also reminds us that he resets our character in the midst of our adversity. In fact, he tells us that's exactly in the midst of the adversity is where we can best become a mirror image of Jesus if we choose to pursue it. So in light of all this, I have one final question for you. Given everything that we've discussed, given everything that we've ever seen or experienced over the last several months or so, are you willing to trust him? with your future. 64,000 dollar question I ask practically every time I have the opportunity. I'm pretty sure even God didn't think that everyone who heard or read Jeremiah's letter would all of a sudden throw themselves into the reset of his mission and purpose as it was laid out. In fact, he goes on to say as much in the last couple of verses of the passage. Take a listen. He says in verses 8 and 9, he says for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie. And they are prophesying to you in my, or not prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. There's false prophets all over the place in every society at every point in time and everywhere. And what God is pointing out to the children of Israel is the same thing he's pointing out to us. Do not allow yourselves to be deceived by them. I am God. I have not changed. My mission has not changed. Do not listen to them. We can infer from this that God is saying that if you want to follow after these false prophets, you'll reap a bitter harvest filled with disappointment, Suffering, death, which is sad because he is offering them a chance to reset their lives, to be on mission with him and the restoration of his kingdom, living lives that while difficult, yes, will be filled with significance and ultimately his peace, his shalom. David addressed this in, in, in the 23rd Psalm, verse 4. We all know this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Here's the money verse right here. You 
are with me. Same promise or the same curse that holds true for us. We just have to answer the same question. Do we, do you, feel that God is ultimately trustworthy? Only you can answer that. I would ask you, my friends, answer it wisely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these were some hard words. This was a difficult situation that the children of Judah had to go through. Just, we're going through difficult situations ourselves and many of us are asking questions don't seem to know the answer. This is new territory for us. We, we struggle with it. But God, the one thing, the one thing that we have to be reassured of is the thing we talked about first, and that's that you are in control. And because you are in control, the best thing we can do, the smartest thing we can do, the rightest thing we can do, to let you control it. Let you take the lead. You guide us and direct us. Tell us what we need to know. Tell us how to live. You already have. Nothing's changed. You've called us to serve and reach and teach. God, I would ask that every person who hears this, whether it be online or whether it be in this building, or whatever the case may be, God, that each and every one of them would reset just press that reset button and say, okay, God, let's try this again. I'm done being angry, done being vengeful. I'm on board with you. I'm all about reaching people. I'm all about helping and serving and leading. May we all take these words to heart and may we allow you to come in and transform us and change us into the mirror image of your son, Jesus Christ because that's your deepest desire for us. And may we come to understand and seek your shalom wherever we are in all that we do and all that we are. We praise you today. We honor you. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name.